Thank you very much, Paul. I'm going to talk today about technological change in the 21st century and some of the challenges that it presents. But before I do so, I want to give you just a sort of a little bit of conceptual background so that you understand where I'm coming from. I started my academic life as a philosophy undergraduate. And as a philosophy undergraduate, I was interested in the way in which philosophers always seem to have two sets of ideas, an idea about the way the world is and an idea about the way the world ought to be. So they all have an epistemology, an ontology, and they all seem to have a a politics or an ethics. Not a very original observation. But the particularly intriguing thing for me was the way in which the idea about the way the world is always seemed to legitimate and add impact, add force to the idea about the way the world ought to be. So there's these two guys here uh, making more or less rude gestures to each other. Uh, You instantly recognize the one on the left is Karl Marx and the one on the right is, of course, Plato. And Plato, being very upset with the way the Athenians had treated Socrates, uh, wanted to have a society that was far from being democratic, a very stable society, ruled by an hereditary class of guardians. And he had a theory about the way the world is, which was the idea of the world of forms. That somewhere in the world of forms, there is, for example, the perfect blackboard rubber, of which all blackboard erasers that we experience in life is just an imperfect projection. So you can see there about how the idea about the way the world is seems to legitimate and enforce this very stable political vision. Fast forward a few thousand years, Marx and Engels sitting in the pub outside the British Museum getting terribly excited with what happens when you boil water. Because when you boil water, you put lots of energy into it, and of course, nothing happens until you get to 100 degrees Celsius when magically it turns from liquid to socialism. I mean liquid to vapour. Okay? So the underlying theme behind a lot of what I'm going to say is the notion that nature is very much the way we legitimate our moral and political preferences. We need to note, I think, that in the late 20th, early 21st century, we don't generally experience nature directly but we experience it through the mediated categories of the environment and of human health. So it's nature outside and internal nature. And also concerns about science and technology and science and technological change and their impacts on nature and on human health. And so underlying everything I'm saying, I want you to bear in mind that concerns about science and technology and the future of science and technology very much reflect current preoccupations we have about the society we live in today. Now, a lot of people in addressing themes like futures and the 21st century will give you a catalogue of things that they think are going to happen over the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Some of you may recently have attended uh, a very stimulating lecture by Lord Rees, the president of the Royal Society, the uh, Sheldonian, where uh, he was projecting what he thought was going to happen over a 50-year time period. You can go on the web and you can find all kinds of lists of the 10, 20, 30 big risks that humanity faces in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I'm not going to do that today. I just want to note that there is a strong tendency for these to cluster either at the extreme of being cornucopian, painting idealistic futures, or catastrophist uh, visions uh, at the other extreme. And in fact, if you read James Martin's book, uh, The Meaning of the 21st Century, you'll see there that he says that he, as a futurist, somebody who is in the business of projecting futures and forward, believes that in the 21st century we will either create the greatest civilization humanity has ever known, quote, or we will destroy ourselves. So there tends to be this very extreme bifurcation uh, of ideas about the future. 
the kinds of things we expect in prophecies of doom. Remember the limits to growth debate. Some of us uh, going back in the uh, second half of the last century, we now have a lot of concern about disease pandemics, bird flu, um, scientific hubris. Remember the worries people had just a little while ago about what happens when you turn on the Hadron Collider? Um, Nothing, it broke. Um, Climate collapse, water wars. Uh, Actually, does anybody know the last time two countries went to war over water? Sorry? Very good. Four and a half thousand years ago, it was Umar and Lagesh uh, in Mesopotamia. Countries take pot shots at each other and they get very bellicose, but they don't actually go to war over water. But on the other hand, you have predictions of plenty. You have uh, the transhumanists who look at technologies for life extension and enhancement. Uh, There's talk of a next wave of the Green Revolution. Uh, It was the last Green Revolution, in fact, that saved us from the fate that uh, Paul Ehrlich and others were uh, projecting with the limits to growth debate. Uh, Extreme bandwidth computing, nanotechnology, and things of this sort. Now, given that this is a lecture series which started with the Neolithic, I thought I'd have to include this graph. This is actually a logarithmic graph of uh, uh, what one group of thinkers about the future uh, centered around a guy called Ray Kurzweil called the singularity. And this is where they say there's going to be a technology, technologically induced transition that will completely change what it means to be human. Uh, And you can see here, somewhere about the middle of that graph, uh, we actually have human ancestors walking upright, spoken language, uh, as we then move down early cities, agriculture, city-states, industrial revolution, computer, personal computer. And you can find other graphs like this on the net, which will actually project that kind of logarithmic uh, trend into the future. When people talk about this very rapidly accelerating rate of technological change, Once again, it seems to be in these kind of catastrophist or cornucopian terms. Some technologies, it seems, are changing too fast for some people. Nanotechnology being one of these. Uh, Particularly nanotechnology and its applications in relationship to neuroscience uh, and to information technology uh, and these kind of transformative uh, ideas about human transformation that I mentioned earlier. On the other hand, other technologies seem to be changing far too slowly for the comfort of others. Uh, Examples there would be our fresh water provision systems and the climate and energy system. These are systems that we would like to be able to change, but seem to have enormous inertia and enormous resistance uh, to rapid technological innovation or transformation. So I'm going to start by looking at technologies that some people at least worry change too fast. And then in the second part of the lecture, I'm going to consider some of the issues in technologies changing too slowly. It's basically, it's a a short video clip, um, which you can find on the web if you search for yourself, in which it just shows a very rapid series of technological innovations um, from the recent past and going into the future, pointing out things like Uh, the current rate of the development of new information, people uh, studying in university and technical fields, by the time they reach their third year of study, something like a quarter of what they learned at the beginning is already out of date, uh, looking at changes in population and so on and so forth. Anyway, it was just to give you some idea of the way in which uh, there's a lot of presentation about these rates of, uh, of technological change. I think the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the whole question of novelty and continuity. Because actually what are often presented as new technologies, uh, very radical transitions, often have very strong continuities with the past. And those of you who are interested in this, I strongly recommend uh, the book by David Edgerton called The Shock of the the Old. Uh, He points out, for example, that in the Second World War, uh, the combatant forces used as many pack animals Uh, as they had used in the First World War. Uh, And there's a whole range of examples that he gives there of technologies where we think things are very novel, but in fact owe a great deal uh, to to the past. And almost any time somebody says, we are in unprecedented 
times of technological change, uh, one can, I think, recognize that we've always been in unprecedented times of technological change. What's going on? Why is it that there is so, such a strong impetus to appeal to novelty on the one hand, and on the other hand to appeal to uh, tradition? And the answer, I think, is that they're both rhetorical devices that are used to mobilize resources in social conversations, in policy debates, and so forth. Claims about novelty uh, can actually excite potential consumers. So if we say uh, we have nanotechnology in a, pro- uh, in a project, it's a nano, uh, nanotechnology, it also attracts investment into new fields. Uh, they're very useful, these claims about novelty, for energizing uh, university research departments, a number of which were particularly chemistry departments, were in trouble uh, until they reinvented themselves as departments of nanoscience and nanotechnology, whereupon uh, they were able to recruit students uh, and uh, to uh, uh, attract significant research funds. So we can see that novelty is useful in that sense, but we also recognize that it raises concerns that new potentials create new risk. Uh, And when people raise concerns about those, Uh, the public becomes suspicious. I had, by the way, a master's student a couple of years ago who did a very interesting uh, short thesis looking at the way in which US and British firms were representing uh, nanotechnology in their products. And a number of the British firms which were using nanotechnology in their products didn't advertise it, whilst actually some US firms that weren't using nanotechnology were making claims that they did. Uh, and she attributed this to the idea that the British were more cautious about the idea that they might be stigmatized if some unforeseen negative consequence of employing nanotechnology were to come to pass. There's quite a long history of this. In the 1960s and 70s, we were told about nuclear energy. It'll give electricity that's, quote, too cheap to meter. And when environmentalists raised concerns about the safety of nuclear energy, uh, you heard statements from the industry such as, it's just another way of boiling water. We're quite familiar with these technologies. Um, It's nothing new. Uh, With GM foods, we had the promise that GM foods were going to end world hunger. We ended up with the flavor-savored tomato. Um, But nevertheless, uh, when people said, okay, you've got this new genetic modification technology, perhaps there are some Uh, unforeseen negative consequences there, the response of the developers was very much to say, well, look, this is just the extension of plant breeding and animal husbandry, which we've been doing for for hundreds of years. Uh, Nanotechnology, introduced just a few short years ago uh, to the public with a lot of fanfare, the next big thing, quote, uh, and once again, when people raise concerns that there might be some downside of of nanotechnology, particularly nanoparticles in the environment, which I'll say a little bit more about in a moment, uh, the response was, oh, this is just chemistry, it's colloidal chemistry, you can go to the Royal Institution and you can see the nano gold that Faraday created um, way back when at the time of the foundation of the Royal Institution. More recently, transhumanism, this idea that we can uh, actually change what it means to be human by the use of... uh, of technology by nanotech implants uh, linked up to uh, external computing power and this kind of thing, uh, radical enhancement of what it means to be human. When people raise concerns, uh, the response has been, well, these are just prosthetics. Um, so we can see that there's this pattern of hype and retreat, which naturally does not do a great deal to... Uh, enhance public confidence in the claims that are being made about these new technologies. I want to focus in on two particular challenges that rapid uh, introduction of new technologies uh, present. The first is the control dilemma, and then uh, the second one is what we call the condition of ubiquity. These were both explored in a recent report of the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution, called Novel Materials in the Environment, uh, the case of nanotechnology. I have the cover uh, on the slide here. The control dilemma was a concept originally introduced by the social scientist David Collingridge, and it goes more or less as follows. It's at the early stages of the development of a technology. You don't know enough about how it's going to turn out 
to put in place the appropriate controls for ensuring that it develops safely. And by the time you become aware of aspects of that technology that you might want to control because of unanticipated negative effects, it's too late to put the controls in place. So it's the notion that you've locked in early to a particular technological trajectory which you're then unable to backfill the appropriate social uh, controls for. And certainly it seems uh, that this is one of the issues uh, that is facing the development of uh, nanomaterials and their their, uh, widespread introduction into products. Uh, Let me be very clear that so far as we were concerned on the Royal Commission, there is no evidence that we saw that suggests that there are serious human health or environmental effects that have been detected with the use of nanoparticles in things like car tyres, tennis rackets, golf balls, and other essentials of life. Um, But there were certainly uh, plausible pathways by which these very, very small particles uh, could actually cause disruption. Um, And in particular, certain kinds of carbon nanotubes physically resemble asbestos fibres. And asbestos is, of course, a lovely case of the problem of the control dilemma. Asbestos was a technology that saved lives as a fire retardant uh, and in brake uh, brake linings. But only once it was really uh, well established in society did we discover that it actually uh, was also causing very serious respiratory disease problems. Uh, Another issue is nanosilver, for example. Silver in its bulk form, uh, pretty much non-toxic. Nanosilver, as you may have seen, being used in medical dressings, catheter tubes and all the rest of it, turns out to be a very powerful biocide. So we're not quite sure what happens then when you have nanosilver in your socks and you put your socks in your washing machine and the nanosilver particles get into the environment as to then what their impact may be on fish and so on. There, are, uh, there is experimental work that's been done that shows these particles do actually enter through cell membranes, uh, although, as I say, not yet... Uh, anything that would definitively suggest that there is a real problem. But it illustrates the control dilemma, because now we're at the point where we have to decide, are we going to go full speed ahead with this technology, or are we going to uh, put some kind of controls on it? There's been calls for a moratorium. Well, actually, if you have a moratorium, how do you ever develop uh, the experience with the technology to know whether it's harmful enough? So you can see how this control dilemma works. The second problem is this condition of ubiquity that I referred to. Now, if there was ever a time when technologies arose in one place and could be experimented with and legislated for in one place, that's gone. It may have been true that when the Brits started building canals and railways, the French and the Germans could sit around and say, well, let them make fools of themselves uh, before we go down the same pathway. But that's certainly not the case today, if it were ever true. Uh, It's certainly not the case today because we find new technologies arise in more than one place at once. So you don't find nanotechnology arising in Britain and developing, being regulated, and then the model of regulation being exportable with the technology. You find that technology is in China, it's in India, it's in the United States, it's in products that are being traded under the world trade regime. Okay? So you have a problem there for social learning and a problem uh, which is rooted in the fact that we rely on national governments to regulate product safety and yet it seems that national governments can't effectively control what's in products that come in and go out. So we have these kinds of uh, dilemmas. I just want to unpack um, the initial dichotomy that I presented to you and say that actually when we dig a bit deeper into people's responses to these uh, 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 technological innovations, we actually find that rather than simply two uh, views. There's actually more like four views, although two of them sort of cluster around the catastrophic and two of them sort of cluster around the cornucopian. We have the technophiliac, uh, who uh, is the person who wants to embrace anything new. Um, it's illustrated here actually by somebody who's probably culturally inappropriate for this audience. It's actually Admiral Farragut, uh, the American uh, admiral who coined the phrase full steam ahead and damn the torpedoes. Um, but basically, this is the, pers- this is the idea that we, we really rapidly take up new technologies. The second approach is what I've called here the technocratic, uh, which is the one that says, well, what we need to do is we need to do 
proper scientific assessment uh, of technology and then uh, adopt those technologies which have passed that technological screening uh, and we will put monitoring in place and so on. We will rely on sound science to tell us how to manage the technologies. We have the techno-skeptic who says basically, look, if there's anything dodgy here, I'd rather not have anything to do with it. Uh, and the techno-fatalist who basically says, well, there's not much I can do about it anyway, uh, so I'm just going to have to go along uh, for the ride. And I'd argue that these kinds of stereotypes, which you often find uh, in the press and in popular literature and so on, uh, are actually different forms of techno-selectivity. I would argue that, in fact, nobody is blanket techno-filiac, nobody is blanket um, technophobic, but people actually f like different kinds of technology um, in fairly sort of consistent ways. So what we've called the technophiliac actually likes individually enabling rapidly replaceable technology. This is the Steve Jobs with the, uh, uh, the latest Mac uh, airbook. Uh, a thing of beauty is a joy for a fortnight. Um, rapid turnover. But it's technologies that you as an individual or as a, as a can control in a very localised kind of way. The technocrats actually uh, tend to be those people who go for large, long-lived infrastructure, as I've illustrated here by, by dams. It has been said of them that they have an edifice complex uh, or a tendency to an edifice complex. Um, the techno-skeptics like appropriate technology which have low resource requirements, windmills and so on, and the techno-fatalist uh, is the poor soul who sits in front of the television with a frozen TV dinner, the ultimate f uh, uh, fatalistic food uh, in the ultimate fatalistic pastime. So you have these different kinds of ways of uh, relating to technology, which informs the way that people respond to challenges like the challenge of uh, challenges presented by uh, nanomaterials. They also have four quite distinctive views of nature, and I wonder if anybody would like to venture um, uh, or try, try to... This is your picture bonus uh, uh, for ten. Anybody here from Corpus? No? Okay. Here's your picture bonus for ten. Who would like to try and match up these to the four kinds of uh, attitudes to, to technology? Any volunteers? These are balls in a cup. So benign, the idea is that nature's uh, like a ball in a cup. You can perturb it, and it will return to an equilibrium state. It's forgiving. Nature is ephemeral, says no, that's back to front. The ball's delicately balanced on the cup. Any slight perturbation, catastrophic and irreversible change. The perverse tolerant has the ball in a landscape. Certain problems there, it's okay, it's nestled there quite comfortably, but you can't be sure, of course, that it's actually nestling in the bottom, and you can't be sure how deep or shallow uh, the, uh, the bumps are on either side. And nature capricious is sitting on a flat surface, and any perturbation... Uh, can send it off shooting in any direction rather unpredictably. So wh which one of those do you think, for example, uh, would be the techno... F the, 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 uh, uh, the, the technophiliac, the, the technology, the novelty-embracing kind of approach? Nature benign, okay. And the, uh, uh, the sort of techno-skeptical, uh, technophobic? Capricious, you think? Remember, slight perturbation, catastrophic, ephemeral. Okay. Capricious, I think, actually is the techno-fatalist. You can't really predict the way things are going to go, so you just have to go along for the ride. And, of course, the, uh, that only leaves us with one, but you can see how this, this, this puzzle of where the ball is and how deep uh, the depression is in which it sits uh, goes very much along with the idea of relying on sound science and the need for analysis, the need for more data, uh, in order to be able to inform you of the nature of the problem. Now, so all of these different perceptions of technology and nature, and then you think now if you've got these problems of ubiquity and these, these challenges of the control dilemma, you've got new technology, what are you going to do? Okay. Now, of course, the, techno the, the, the technocratic approach would say you cut through all this bullshit and you do risk analysis. Okay, and then you can work out the probability times the magnitude of the unwanted event, uh, and you can then uh, decide to manage accordingly. The problem here is that when you're looking at uh, these very novel technologies, you don't have very much information about them because you don't have a lot of experience with them. 
And this is a little cartoon that was uh, first published about 30, 25 years ago uh, by Jerry Ravetz and Silvio Funtovitz. Jerry is a fellow at the, uh, uh, the institute that I direct uh, to this day. Um, and what they pointed out was that, in fact, uh, you have three different ways of apprehending risk and dealing with risk, depending on the degree of systemic uncertainty and ignorance about the phenomenon you're dealing with, and about the social decision stakes, uh, uh, how much it matters if you screw up. So close to the origin here, you have low systems uncertainty. This is where you've got lots of information about how systems behave, lots of actuarial data, uh, lots of measurements. And if you screw up, it's not the end of the world. Okay, so you might think here about a component like a, new val- like a valve in a nuclear power plant cooling system. Okay? It's a valve. You've got a lot of information on valve uh, design, valve suppliers, past performance. And if, it's screw- if you screw up, you have to close down the reactor and replace it with another one. But it's not the end of the world. Uh, but as you move out in either direction here, you move into different modes of operating. And, of course, if you are having to make a different kind of decision, which is, are we going to go with a massive nuclear renewal, which is a decision that actually seems to be on the agenda at the moment, um, there you would say the societal decision stakes could be very high. Okay. And you would say, actually, there's quite a lot of systemic uncertainty about what would be involved in ordering a very large number of new nuclear plants as a response to the threats of climate change. And interestingly enough, we find that when we get into high systems uncertainty and high stakes, where we know least but feel that there are very important issues at stake, that's when we tend to have the fiercest arguments, because we're falling back on our fundamental worldview, our view about whether nature is benign or capricious or whatever, and our view about what is the nature of technology and what's the kind of technology we want to choose. And in the middle, you have this mode uh, of clinical consultancy, which is a mode where people uh, want to exercise individual judgment. So in a sense, uh, you can see here that the technocrat would want to try to define a new technology as close to the origin as possible, whereas the, 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 the technosceptics are going to try to push the definition of the technology in terms of decision stakes and worldview up to the top right so we can have a jolly good wide-ranging social discussion about its acceptability. So the problem is with trying to, to simply impose standardised risk analytic techniques, which are perfectly appropriate in the bottom left-hand corner, is that you actually have dispute about whether uh, new technology can be dealt with in those ways or not. Uh, so you have disputes about the appropriate analytic fr- frameworks. Similarly, not just risk analysis, but risk management. The conventional view of risk is it's the, to- the probability times the magnitude of an unwanted event. But social science also tells us that TLC is important. In this case, not tender loving care, but arrangements for, the, uh, for trust, liability, and consent. And so there are important issues here which also come to the fore in the debates about whether or not new technologies ought to be accepted, ought to be embraced, or treated uh, with a great deal more caution. And in the past decade or so, uh, the option for dealing with these conundrums, societal decision-making conundrums, has been to say that what we need is more public participation in decision-making. So we have what social scientists now call the turn to public participation. And you have novel modes of engagement designed by social scientists like myself and implemented by them, planning cells, consensus conferences, citizens' juries and so on, designed to engage larger numbers of the public uh, in these uh, screening of the new technologies. But of course, there's a real problem here, which is if you try to engage the public at an early stage, they are right slap bang face straight away with Ridge's control dilemma. We don't yet know what the form of the new technology is. So how can we have a public debate about it? We also have 20 years of social science experience that says that these public participatory mechanisms, and I've been involved in, in, in many of these, uh, implementing many of these in the past, particularly in the US, they continually encounter these problems of representation. Who do you select to take part? Um, and also the question of how legitimate are the people you select in order to be able to make the decision? 
you have you require a lot of investment. So we had the GM Nation debate, remember? Well, remember the GM Nation debate a couple of years back? Hardly resourced at all by the government, which was nevertheless putting a lot of money into uh, other aspects of trying to get uh, the, the GM crop trials going and so on and so forth. Problems of agenda framing. If you frame the agenda in too narrow a way, the public says, this doesn't reflect our concerns. So actually, framing the GM Nation debate about GM foods was seen as too narrow. What the public wanted to talk about was food and the countryside uh, and, 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 and larger cultural issues. But if you frame it too broadly, you can't get closure, at least not in any reasonable time frame. Does the consultation have if, uh, uh, any impact on decisions? Actually, the social sciences here are, um, I think the verdict is out. Uh, what we don't even know is actually what the impact of the consultation is on the people who participate. And uh, there are conflicting results, some of which says that when people participate and their views are not then embodied in legislation, they get very frustrated and disillusioned. There are other studies that say, actually, this empowers people and gets them more, more, uh, more, more likely to become activists. Um, and evaluation. These mechanisms are seldom evaluated and certainly not objectively evaluated by people outside them. And they, as I say, cannot really resolve these issues of ubiquity and the control dilemma. However, I think it is probably the case that if we can harness all of these four different ideas of nature and different ideas of technology, that very variety is probably the best protection that society has against fatal errors in terms of technology choice. And the trick is going to be how can we in the 21st century have monitoring institutions within a framework of renewed representative democracy that offer the best bet uh, for doing that. But we're still going to be limited by this problem of globalization and ubiquity. So we can, we can do some things about the control dilemma, but we're still stuck with the problem of ubiquity. I'm now going to turn my attention to technologies that appear to be going too slowly um, and some of the issues there. Now, does anybody... Here you are. Here's your picture starter for whatever again. What is, the, what is the significance of this sequence of letters? It's the top line of the keyboard, of the standard English keyboard for a typewriter. The French have a slightly different sequence. They have azerty, um, but we have qwerty. And you're quite right also in identifying the reason for this, which was typewriters originally had the alphabet just simply going A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. And the problem was that typists type too fast, and the keys jammed. So the keyboard was introduced in order to slow typists down. That's funny. Where are the keys? Your, your computer keyboard still has this sequence. When was the last time any of you used a typewriter? Ten years ago? Longer? Yeah, ten years ago. Okay. I bet even then it was a golf ball typewriter. It didn't have keys on it, did it? So why are we still using this keyboard? Now, this is a phenomen phenomenon that Paul David, uh, formerly of All Souls College here, uh, and Brian Arthur at the Santa Fe Institute have independently described as a phenomenon of path dependency or technological lock-in. Something happens at a certain stage in the development of technology that then is carried through right, you know, long after it ceased to be uh, relevant or defining. Because once you had changed the sequence of the keys on the keyboard, other things came into play, like secretaries got trained with that keyboard. Secretarial schools trained people to type to that keyboard. Touch typing courses were devised to, to help you learn to type to that keyboard. And so now the keyboard survives, even though the reason for it uh, has disappeared. So this is an example of socio-technical lock-in. And it's not just the kit, it's the... Uh, it, it's also the social arrangements that go with it. Now, if we think about an awful lot of uh, the technology that we deal with today, um, it has these characteristics of path dependency. These are systems that are not designed. They just growed like topsies. Think for a moment uh, about the way in which we link together drinking water and human waste management. Who in their right minds would have devised a system whereby we purify billions of gallons of water, 
to potable quality to flush toilets with. Right? You laugh. Stupid, isn't it? But that's, that's the international standard of sanitation. How did this happen? Well, the way it happened was very interesting. You had a certain bunch of public health engineers who were worried about um, sort of uh, open, smelly sewers. You had the Great Stink, for example, in London. So they started saying, well, it would be a good idea to put these underground. You had a different bunch of people who said, hmm, there's problems with cholera from water supply. Wouldn't it be a good idea to pipe clean water into cities? And then you had this guy, Thomas Crapper, who invented the first siphon-operated flushing toilet, which actually linked water supply and underground sewers together. And so now you had uh, a, a link system. Um, actually, in the same year that Crapper took out his patent, the Reverend Henry Mole took out a patent on, a pat- on an earth closet. Uh, and if we hadn't had this particular linkage of water and sewerage, uh, we might today be going for a mole instead of going for a crap. Uh, or we might be sitting there thinking, Rain is talking a load of mole. Um, but you can see, you know, the, the, these aren't systems that somebody sat down and designed. Climate change and fossil fuel use. We don't have the current international fossil fuel energy system because somebody designed it. It's because people put in place bits of kit, bits of behavior. Think about how the motor car became so widespread. When the cars first came on the road, you couldn't get gas, petrol. There were no petrol stations. You know, so was, the innovation was petrol stations. The roads were bumpy. So you eventually metalled roads and put smooth surfaces down. Eventually you end up with a locked-in system of motor vehicles, particular kinds of roads, fuel supply stations, and so on. And so you're locked into a particular system. Same thing with electrical generation. So these are what we call complex overdetermined systems. And you can't unpick them by elegant policy interventions like the idea of a carbon tax or carbon trading. You know, if we put carbon trading in place, that will solve climate change. Sorry, guys, it's, it's going to be much more difficult than that because they're not really taking into consideration those kinds of policies, uh, this, this, the characteristic of complex overdetermined systems. Now, I'm going to focus in for a little bit on climate change because it's an area which I uh, devoted about 25 years of my life to. Uh, in fact, first got involved in climate change um, for looking at the s- social policy dimensions uh, in the mid-1980s when I was confidently told by a former deputy administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, Steve, you're wasting your time. Climate change will never be a major public policy issue. Uh, He said for three reasons. It's too far in the future, the science is too uncertain, and there's no easy villain. I said, you're absolutely right on all three counts. That's exactly why it's going to be a major public policy issue. (laughs) Uh, It's a Christmas tree, and you can hang all kinds of different policy agendas on it. But anyway... Just want to draw your attention here. These are the IPCC emission scenarios. This is from Working Group 3 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, of which uh, I have been a member for the past two assessment reports. So this isn't external sniping. This is internal self-criticism. What you see there is a range of scenarios which are socio-technical and economic scenarios for different development pathways that lead over the next 100 years to different outcomes with respect to temperature change. Uh, And the temperature change, of course, is the outcome of different levels of emissions of greenhouse gases leading to different concentrations in the atmosphere. And you'll see that they show a range of between about one degree and six degrees Celsius, depending on uh, what kind of emissions pathway results from what kind of economic development and technological adoption. There's a fundamental problem with the IPCC Working Group 3 methodology, which is all of these scenarios make two assumptions. Every single one of these makes two assumptions. And they make assumptions about autonomous technological change. What they assume is that a trend that has existed for 140 years up until two years ago will continue into the future throughout the next century. And that is a trend of declining energy intensity per unit of GDP and declining carbon intensity per unit of GDP. Both of these, as I say, have dropped fairly consistently over a 140-year period. Two years ago, they changed direction. Now, you can say that's a blip or an anomaly, or you can say it's what? China and India. Exactly. 
Now, I'm of the view that it's not a blip. If you take out the assumed autonomous technological improvement from the IPCC scenarios, you see that the challenge of greenhouse gas emissions control is far greater, far greater than we currently acknowledge. So if you look at this graph here, the green part plus the red part represents the, uh, the anticipated emissions over the next 100 years. And the red part is the amount that is assumed that you will need policies to take yourself from the higher level of those scenarios that we saw in the last slide to the lower levels. So somewhere down from the 6 degrees towards the 1 degree. Okay? The blue part, the dark blue, is the assumed effect of the reduction in carbon intensity worldwide, and the light blue, the assumed effect of the reduction in energy intensity. Take those away, and you can see that those two blue parts mean that the red bit, which is what we think we have to reduce, um, represents that the two blue parts together are three to four times larger than the amount of emissions reduction that we think we have to do. And people are already talking about 60, 80 percent emissions reduction by mid-century to stabilise climate, say, around 500 parts per billion. So if we're really serious about wanting to stabilise carbon concentrations in the atmosphere, around 500, say 550, personally, I I'm, I'm, would not be at all surprised to see us go to 650 parts per million before we get a handle on this, but that's just my own view. If you want to stabilise around, say, 500, 550 parts per million, you've got to really rapidly bring down carbon emissions. Now, this is the logic of carbon trading, okay? as I understand it in a very simple kind of way. You have the curve starting at the origin, going up towards the top right, uh, and you're saying that, that basically is uh, a curve of the cost of carbon. So as you implement a cap-and-trade scheme, and as you bring the, you, you, you lower the cap, the price of the carbon permits goes up and the price of the carbon rises. Supposedly, that should send a signal to the top here, which is the cost of technologies, the cost of alternative technologies. So the upper line is the cost of non-carbon emitting technologies that could compete or you want to have displacing your carbon technologies. At the moment, they're too expensive. They exist. These are not pie-in-the-sky, blue-sky technologies. They're just too expensive to, 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 uh, to compete. And the idea is that as the carbon cost rises, you get more R&D, which eventually brings down the price of the alternative technology until such a point where the two cost curves intersect, at which pace, play, point the new technologies will start to displace the old, dirty carbon technologies. The problem is, I would argue that given the experience we've had of the 10 years between Kyoto and now, if we want to stabilise atmospheric concentrations by mid-century, there is no way that we can get from here to there in the time frame that's left to us. Okay, we've got 40 years to, to reach stabilisation. We've spent 10 years trying to develop an international trading programme, uh, and uh, you know, we're nowhere close uh, to achieving this goal. So the argument that I'm making here is that if we're serious about dealing with climate change, we're going to have to have a major technology transformation in energy, and it's going to mean bringing down the costs very rapidly. So that's the, uh, the lower of the two curves coming from the top left of the diagram here uh, to meet a rising cost of carbon uh, that I think actually um, will be required also. Um, how are you going to bring that about? The only way I can see how you're going to bring that about is by massive public investment in energy research, demonstration, uh, research development, demonstration, uh, and deployment of the new technologies. But there's a real design challenge here. Because in the 1970s, some of us, I remember this because it was when I first started working at the Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee. Um, in the 1970s, the U.S., actually did have an attempt to uh, really uh, force the development of alternative technologies in the light of the oil price shocks of the 1970s. 
And one of the major problems that occurred there was that, in fact, you had Department of Energy bureaucrats channeling that funding into the technologies that they researched at engineering school, and you had congressmen channeling the funds to their home constituencies in what's called the port barrel, uh, bringing home the port barrel. So one of the things you immediately face is how do you inject a very large amount of money by way of investment for new technologies without actually having bureaucrats and politicians picking the winners at the front end of Colling Ridge's uh, control dilemma. Remember, okay, in other words, picking the winners, locking in too early to a particular technology, which may not be the technology actually that you want to come out at the end, uh, so as to speak. I think we're talking about big sums of money here, or I used to think we were talking about big sums of money here. Two years ago when I published uh, the commentary in Nature called Time to Ditch Kyoto, I said that we should be spending on energy R&D the same amounts of money we currently spend on military R&D. And my logic there was that this is a, if, if climate change is a strategic threat to human welfare, we should be thinking about it in strategic terms, uh, and therefore we should be putting comparable amounts of money. How much does the U.S. spend on military R&D? It's about $80 billion a year. Britain spends about £4 billion a year. Um, now, you can see that that's a much bigger sum than we currently put into energy, uh, uh, energy investment. But actually, in the light of what's happened recently in the uh, financial bailouts, it's actually pretty, small, pretty much small change, isn't it? How should we invest this money? My argument here is that in order to avoid this problem of locking in by bureaucrats and politicians, we should be investing this money in what I call diversified portfolios of technologies. So in, in other words, you don't allow the money to go into a solar tech, uh, portfolio or a nuclear portfolio, but you insist that there are competing portfolios with different mixtures of technologies in them, rather like a mutual fund has different, uh, different stocks in it, and you then allow, uh, see how these compete against each other. Uh, so what you're doing is you're actually stimulating uh, the investment in the research and development and demonstration deployment at the front end, but ultimately allowing a market-type mechanism to make the selection from the technologies uh, as they uh, are developed. This means that you will indeed invest money in technologies you don't ultimately use. That doesn't matter. That's a legitimate option value of the development of the technology. It's a legitimate internal part of the R&D cost of the technology that you end up with. Um, Tony Giddens, in his new book, actually says that we should be picking winners. And I think he's got that dead wrong, uh, this new book that's out later this month. What are the analogies for this kind of thing? Are there any precedents for this kind of investment? Yes. Um, the analogies are all imperfect. People have talked about the Manhattan Project, the Apollo Program. Uh, those are flawed analogies because they were usually single agencies with a budget pursuing a very, sing uh, a very specific goal. Better analogy might be the Cold War the kind of investment that uh, Western governments made in a whole range of science and technology without expecting any particular outcome, but believing that it would actually take the overall science and technological uh, capacity of the Western countries uh, to a place where they would be a better place to survive the Cold War than uh, those of the East. The Green Revolution uh, is another analogy that's been used. But there's another lock-in problem here, and this is one that I maintain, as far as I know, nobody recognises. Because all of this stuff is predicated on the idea that if you put clean technologies in at the top of the system, the dirty technologies get pushed out at the bottom. That's simply not true. Humanity has only ever given up one energy source. Anybody know what it is? Sperm whale oil. And it wasn't because we ran out of sperm whales, it was kerosene, paraffin was, was, was much, more, much cheaper and easier to obtain. We still use as much biomass today on a global scale as we did 100 years ago. What happens is new clean technologies go in at the top of the system, and the, that means there's more of the dirty stuff available for poor people at the bottom. The homely analogy for what I'm saying is think of this on a global scale. Okay, I as the government decide I want you guys to all go out and get energy-efficient refrigerators. So I will give you a subsidy. You go out, you go down to Curry's, you can take the check I've given you, and you can buy a double-A efficient refrigerator, right? You get it home, you get it installed, and then you say, well, what do we do with the old one? <laughs> I know, we'll put it in the garage and keep beer in it. Okay, that's actually what happens on a, on a, on a homely scale, and it's what happens 
on the global scale with these energy technologies. So we've got this problem, how are we going to get the dirty technologies out at the bottom? Not something people think about. It, recently we've had um, some recognition that the scale of emissions reductions is much larger and that we're not making the progress that we would like to be making in this regard. Uh, and we've been hearing talk about Plan B. Plan B is geoengineering. The notion that we will actually make major interventions in planetary systems to, uh, to, to combat the climate change problem. Interestingly enough, geoengineering is nearly always talked about as a last resort. Uh, you find that even its most enthusiastic advocates will say, we should develop the capacity for this. Uh, but we shouldn't implement it until we're really sure that everything else has failed. Um, I'm actually on a Royal Society panel at the moment that's evaluating a number of geoengineering options and also trying to identify some of the social and economic and legal uh, ramifications of them. And I'll give you an insight into some of our thinking uh, in a moment. But why is it that they are presenting this as a last resort? It's very largely because of concern about a moral hazard. There is concern that if we actually take geoengineering seriously that people will think it's all right to carry on emitting carbon the way we do today. This was, by the way, exactly the same argument that was used for more than a decade as to why we shouldn't take seriously uh, climate change adaptation. Because if we said it's, it's possible to adapt to climate change, people will say we shouldn't be reducing emissions. I would argue that that was actually um, a very wrong-headed position and that we're now in a situation where we recognise that adaptation is inevitable but we've lost 10 to 15 years where we could have been uh, engaging in adaptation research and putting adaptation mechanisms into place with the result that many more people, particularly in developing countries, will go hungry, get sick and die young than would have done otherwise. Uh, and I think we're in danger of repeating that error by not taking geoengineering seriously. It's at the very least a necessary insurance against the idea that we've underestimated the sensitivity of climate quite seriously, which we may have done. There's a lot of... Um, wobbliness in the models, despite what uh, uh, some scientists may say. Um, there is also uh, the real possibility of failure to mitigate emissions through conventional means. And the kinds of technology options we're looking at there are going to be uh, presenting interesting governance challenges. There's basically two kinds of things you can do with geoengineering, two goals. One is to uh, increase the radiative capacity of the Earth, increase its albedo, reflect more energy back into space, more sunlight back into space. Or you can actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay? So there's two, two ways you can, you can do geoengineering, or, or two goals. Uh, then there's two ways you can uh, try to achieve those goals. One is by tinkering with ecosystems. Some people prefer to call it tuning ecosystems. Uh, and the other is by uh, mechanical engineering. So an example of atmospheric carbon removal using uh, ecosystems tinkering is the idea that you can put lots of powdered iron into certain parts of the ocean that will encourage plankton blooms, which will take up carbon uh, from the atmosphere uh, and uh, uh, fix it in the ocean. Uh, the idea of ecosystems tinkering applied to increasing radiative capacity is the idea that you put sulfate aerosols up in, in the upper atmosphere. You, for example, have an additive in jet fuel that sprays these things at high altitudes and that that will then reflect sunlight back. Uh, on the mechanical engineering side, if you want to re increase radiative capacity, people are talking about space mirrors or parasols, things that you would actually put up in, uh, using uh, launch vehicles. Um, but there's also the option of what are called artificial trees, uh, Klaus Lackner, particularly at Columbia University, is the leading exponent of this technology, which is building machines that will take carbon out of the atmosphere, uh, convert it into carbonate rock or into um, uh, carbon, uh, liquid uh, carbon dioxide, which you can inject into spent oil and gas wells. Now, the interesting thing here is actually those first top two ecosystems tinkering uh, techniques are probably quite cheap. They're probably really quite cheap. They're the sorts of things that an individually wealthy person could do. And there is some concern among uh, some commentators of what's called the green finger scenario. Uh, remember gold finger, you know, okay, this is green finger. 
Um, and it's the idea that a, a wealthy individual or perhaps an individual country might become frustrated with international processes and just go ahead and do this without due regard for the possible unintended environmental consequences because we don't really know what the environmental consequences long-term of either ocean fertilization or stratospheric aerosols will be. Space reflectors are going to be very expensive. It's very likely that only governments could do these, but these raise a different kind of concern, and that is they are potentially weaponizable. Uh, there's actually quite a long and interesting history of attempts to modify weather and climate, particularly uh, coming out of the United States, going right the way back to the period of the Civil War. Uh, and in the 1950s, there were various measures that were uh, being experimented with and concerned then about them being, uh, having the potential to be used as, uh, as weapons of war, just indeed as some of the early uh, techniques that were being explored during the American Civil War, like lighting huge forest fires, uh, were considered as being, having potential military implications. So there's concern there. Also, very expensive, very resource-intensive to get these things up there and into orbit. Air capture, mechanical trees, the question is, will it work? Can it be made uh, cost-effective? Uh, some estimates suggest you could do air capture for costs at the lower ends of the uh, stern estimates for conventional mitigation. If that's the case, actually, this wouldn't just be something of last resort. It's something you would actually do quite, uh, quite soon because it would be a rapid way of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. The problem is, do you have sufficient reservoirs to, uh, to store the carbon uh, uh, in addition to the uncertain, and you know, it would mean building a lot of these things. Um, so there are s certainly different governance challenges and uncertainties associated with all of them. So to summarise, you know, where do, what are we facing with the challenge, technological change challenges around climate change? This is, in a sense, rethinking climate change as a technology problem rather than as a, an environmental problem. Uh, I think we certainly have to say there's n there can't be any fix without technology. Anybody who thinks that we can do this by greater efficiency and behavioural change, I think, is really seriously deluding themselves. But we're going to have significant government intervention. Uh, and we're going to have the problem that we're going to have to have that intervention under circumstances where governments cannot know in advance what the optimal technological pathway will be. Actually, this is all sounding terribly familiar, isn't it? Because it's, it's the parallel problems with the current economic crisis. You know, we need the government intervention, but we're not actually sure what the outcomes of the intervention will be. Um, but I think that there are, nevertheless, despite those problems, uh, certain advantages in taking the energy modernization approach. It at least offers opportunities for China and India to engage. There's nothing in carbon trading for China and India. But actually China could, it has the potential, the physical potential to generate as much electricity using wind alone as the US currently consumes every year. If China chose to do that, and bear in mind it does, it's, this is not a democratic society so they don't have to worry about people objecting to windmills. If they chose to do that, they could radically transform the economics of wind turbines internationally. They've got the technological capacity, they've got the, the inexpensive labour. But, of course, I would say, as I've just argued with respect to these uh, geoengineering goals, even energy modernization probably won't meet the carbon stabilization goals that we have to face by mid-century. So we're going to have to have uh, some fairly serious intervention there. So in summary, whether well, technologies are seen as changing too fast, as in the case of nanoparticles, or changing too slow, as in the case of the energy system, Modulating the pace of technological innovation seems to be a major challenge for the 21st century. How are we going to choose what to slow down, what to speed up? Can we actually do that? Can we change the pace of technological change? Can we really be, as a society, techno-selective? Or are we just condemned to be takers in a market, global marketplace? In either case, in both the fast and the slow uh, challenges, you have these twin troubles, tr problems of not locking in too soon or being locked in at a point too late in the technology. So you have this problem of the control dilemma and you have this problem of ubiquity. After all, ubiquity also applies to climate change because the fossil fuel emissions are, and are ubiquitous worldwide. We have a whole range of issues 
to do with uh, technological change and their acceptability, uh, which can't be resolved by simply applying existing models of risk analysis, and neither relying on the market nor uh, turns to participatory governments are going to cut through the Gordian knots of the acceptability issues around things like a new nuclear uh, uh, program. So I think we need new thinking about pluralistic institutional arrangements that are going to have to do at least three things. They're going to have to provide early warnings. In other words, we have to have monitoring mechanisms for new technology. We need to have technological innovation in order to be able to respond to those warnings. And we need to have methods of effective governance to be able to implement the appropriate technological responses. And I just leave you with a final disturbing thought uh, stimulated by the observation uh, that I made just now about China. But historically, the most sustainable societies have not been liberal democracies, have not been capitalist economies. They have either been authoritarian hierarchies that could build pyramids, water temples, the great irrigation empires that Wittfogel discusses, or they've been based on strictly egalitarian frugality, pretty much at the level of hunter-gatherers, or steady state, at least steady-state agricultural societies. Neither of those, it seems to me, are very attractive uh, prospects for the 21st century.